Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And today we come solemnly pronouncing the death of moral relativism. R.I.P. I know. Uh, gosh, I knew him so well. Exactly. We've all met him or her. I mean, we're kind of assu- assigning no, no, gender I, to no, an I've intangible been, noun. I've known some moral relativist hers as well. Okay. So it comes. So I was thinking of the intangible noun, but now you're. We're talking about particular instantiations. Well, we're yeah, we're personifying it. Yeah, that's right. I think it's safe to say you're right. It's probably... It's, it's, it's beyond gender. Yeah. So we are ta- referencing an article by Jonathan Merritt, fine scholar, or, or journalist, rather, journalist who writes a lot of places, and this is in the Atlantic, and he says that Moral relativism, which was considered by conservatives to be one of postmodern society's greatest threats, may now be a relic of the past. Wow. So how exactly did, uh, did this death happen, which I think may be declared prematurely? Yeah. It, well, Like Abe Vigoda, who actually did die. Remember they? Oh uh, yeah, when they yeah. thought he was always dead and he wasn't dead. <laughs> there was a website, is Abe Vigoda dead? But it, uh May he may he rest in peace. He was great on Barney Miller, right? I always well, yeah, and I I would curse that yeah you know, the character in Godfather. It was, uh, you know, it was short but memorable. So Merritt has this quote from Paul Ryan. He says, "A four years ago, before he was speaker, a smooth faced Paul Ryan said, if you ask me what the biggest problem in America is, I'm not going to tell you debt, deficits.'" statistics, economics, I'll tell you it's moral relativism. Wow. That could be the future Paul Ryan, President Paul Ryan. It could be President Paul Ryan. Yeah. Do you think he'll stay in as good a shape if he's president? Because he does P90X. I don't know if he'll have time to be quite as cut as he is. Yeah. I mean, he really is a fine... No, he's in, he's in very good very good shape. Yeah. yeah you know, by the way, you know who I my youngest son thinks should be president? Uh, no. The Rock. Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Because everybody, everybody loves The Rock. He is a bipartisan. I mean, there's he has he's the country. appeal. He has, he's funny. He can you know, beat both uh, predators from alien space as well as uh, earthquakes. So he's very diverse. Wait, was he in Predator? Alien? I thought he was in some space kind of movie where he, he was, was in some space things, I think. But I don't not. know. It was not actually the Predator stuff, but anyway. The Predator, that's a great, that had Carl Weathers, Jesse Ventura. Oh, so that was the first, it was a great, great movie, really, really interesting. Jesse Ventura told a story about, like, why he didn't move to Hollywood, because he thought it would be bad for his kids, but he, when he was filming that, Arnold said to him, Jesse, when you move into Hollywood with all the boys, and he, <laughs> you know, and then he became governor, because, he, well, they both became, two people from that film became governors of states, so if I were Carl Weathers, I would be lining up, you know, my exploratory campaign to be governor. There we somewhere. go, there we go. So the point of his article is basically that, uh, you know, you, you know, you, we, many of us have probably read these studies where they ask uh, high school or early college students if uh, the Holocaust is morally reprehensible. And they say, you know, and they come back with without being able to firmly say it. They say, well, in our culture, it's wrong. But, you know, <laughs> we've all heard stories like this, some anecdotal, some providing actual evidence. That's just your opinion. Exactly. Exactly. 
But the point of the article is that all of this campus shaming and all of the safe spaces and the kind of ethic of intolerance, or actually the ethic of basically being offended by intolerance, has given way to, uh, as opposed to a wishy-washy moral relativism, an actual uh, fastidious kind of moral perspective that is basically shaming and censoring of people who step outside the politically correct box. Yes, I hear they're building a guillotine on the uh, commons. Exactly. Yeah. And we've talked about this a few weeks ago, right, with with Matt Milner and the Wheaton controversy and how basically a lot of comedians have said they won't do college campus right. anymore. I mean, right. Bill Maher was disinvited from Berkeley or something because of, of – or the, at least the students wanted him disinvited from giving a commencement address because of some statements he made about Islam uh, in light right. of certain terror attacks. So, so in other words, the new um, – Dogma is that I'm intolerant of intolerance. Right. That that's that there becomes a kind of shaming around it, it, as long as you're tolerant, you're in the moral, you know, safe space. But, but once you're selectively perceived... tolerant. Right. Yeah, you, you have to be tolerant to the uh to whatever is accepted to be tolerant. You know, in other words, there is an orthodoxy of what things we should be tolerant about. For instance, you know, nuance, uh, which many of the most complex issues um, in our time really take a nuanced, need a nuanced approach. You know, for instance, the articulate approach Donald Trump takes to abortion, for instance. You know, you you have a very sustained, nuanced uh, positioning there over the last week. Well, it's interesting you bring Donald Trump up because that he... Merritt brings uh, Trump up in the article. By the way, I hope you all caught the the dripping sarcasm there. Yeah, it was. It's actually going to ruin the equipment. <laughs> the dripping. Uh, he says that uh, Merritt quotes Andy Crouch of Christianity Today, uh, saying, "Talk of good and bad has has to defer to talk about respect and recognition." So we still we we're still talking in absolute terms, or or that there are fixed values, but that they're not about good and bad, but about respect and recognition. No, mon- no wonder many God and family conservatives dislike this new moral code as much as the relativism it has replaced. Donald Trump's candidacy offers a compelling case study. The conservatives who support Trump, perhaps half of all Republicans and more, say they like, th- they say they like that he speaks his mind, even if his views are politically incorrect. In other words, Trump makes no effort to be inclusive or tolerate those that disagrees. For supporters, policies of mass deportation and discrimination are acceptable because they push back against the new moral code. Then he says, staring at Trump's carefully quaffed hairdo, across the fence are liberals <laughs> and younger, more moderate conservatives. Having come of age during the shift from moral relativism, they place a higher value on tolerating others' opinions and avoiding discrimination. Because they are offended by Trump's violation of social virtue, this group can be found on Facebook, Twitter, and on meme-laden Instagram, shaming Trump and all who support him. You know, I really think where this whole trend began, or began, begins, continues to go on, is when you ask a four-year-old what they want for lunch, you are empowering them from the beginning. In other words, a four-year-old should not necessarily have the option of what they should get for lunch. 
And then you give them that option, and then they get told from kindergarten forward how wonderful and special they are. You get trophies for participation. And so you actually empower them to feel remarkably good about themselves, regardless if they have done anything or have achieved anything or actually a thought, a critical thought in their entire life. What we should do is just make them eat baked beans and watch Full Metal Jacket. <laughs> then they'll learn, they'll learn what the world is about and quick. Well, yeah, I actually did to get beyond. I mean, it's, it's you know, you start out thinking you're the only thing that exists. And part of, part of what, you know, uh, is entailed in becoming a functioning human being is to realize, whoa, wait a minute, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not the center. I'm not the best speller. Oh, my gosh, there's somebody better than me at soccer. Oh, you know, there's this, this person is a little more popular than I am. All but, those things are, are, are really important to learn uh, to, to, you know, not only I think there's great spiritual lessons to be learned there, but just to be a normal human being who, who uh, you know, plays nice and, you know, doesn't cut everybody off in traffic and, you know, allows four wheels you know, four way stop signs to work, you know. But I think that the I think that what the author's saying though, like, okay, you have kids who were in he 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 talks about like the eighties and nineties, um, you know, the Kurt Cobain era. They were raised um getting to choose their their breakfast or their lunch. So are the kids who now appear uh, more absolutist, less relativistic. Although again, it's not a traditional family values uh, based uh, morality, but again, the inclusion, tolerance, shame. So it seems that uh, the entitlement thing, while that may be a big problem or in the way we raise our children, it, it doesn't quite, you could be a narcissist and be, and not be a moral relativist. You could be a narcissist and be one. So I, I right. don't know that that would change the dynamic. Well, I, but I think part of it's uh, – any other thing, I think generations react to each other. And then I also think social observers make constructs that exaggerate one generation's reaction to the other. In other words, I, again, I like this writer as well. But I, I think Foucault is more right uh, about his observation that there isn't really a sequential kind of uh, fight between – you know, a more objective view of the world and a more relativistic view of the world, but they always exist in one way or the other, side by side. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I mean, I think that's probably true. So, you might have just nuanced this into the end of our discussion. It's just, it's all um, nuanced. <laughs> no, but uh, I didn't mean to do it. But I think that's part of what we have to keep in mind. I think sometimes when we speak definitively here listen i'm starting to sound like you now but when we speak too definitively about something we do forget that we're just creating a framework in which to understand a phenomena but i agree that there are all kinds of new phenomena happening particularly as it's playing out in the american political scene that uh blow up all the old paradigms yeah and i think what he says about like the the trump shaming is true i mean i have not supported donald trump i have not uh, you know, like I've never said, but I, I will occasionally say, okay, you know, this is really interesting or intriguing. And I've experienced the shaming thing. You have to watch you talk about it with, cause you can't talk about it without morally condemning anybody that would consider supporting him or you are shamed. I mean, you're, you're looked at as someone that is, you know, trying to offer dispassionate reflections on Stalin or Hitler or something. Right. 
So, I mean, you're, you're like, you're right. You're, you're like, that's what you are doing. I, mean, <laughs> I, I think I've done we, like that. Was a, that was a case study. <laughs> no, I do, I do understand why people are attracted to Donald Trump. Um, you know, for instance, I mean, the day after 9-11, I said, you know, we need to blow up something. So did Howard Stern. Yeah. And, you know, um, there, was, there was a kind of pragmatic dimension to that. And also that was a reaction. I mean, and um, uh, that was an understandable position, but it was not my better angels or my more, let's think about the big picture, you know, uh, uh, that's involved there. Because, it, well, you know, actually we did need to defend ourselves but obviously that kind of let's blow up things and let's show them who we are has ended up um, killing thousands and thousands of people and maiming others and totally changing the geopolitical map of the Middle East. So maybe our, our need to defend ourselves, our need to bring about justice uh, needs to be tempered. And I think the same thing true is true. When you have this impulse, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, frankly, I'm pretty progressive and I get tired of, I got tired of the politically correctness. I mean, I, you know, I, I dealt with a fairly controversial and complex issue and I was trying to have nuanced positions on a national level and I got nailed by both sides. And I, gosh, I just wish, couldn't we just, can't we just drop the gloves and try to have a discussion? So I, I understand that frustration, but that doesn't give you a pass to, to make a uh, reactive move that goes contrary to your values. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting, though, what we could debate. Like, again, what I think Merritt's pointing out is that these people in uh, their Trump support, and you will hear people qualify. Like, I've heard a lot of people say, well, I don't agree on this. I don't agree. But they are, in some sense, sticking up for their values in that they are reacting to what they perceive as a censorious, politically correct, uh, you can't say anything outside of this sort of culturally protected right. safe zone. So in, they, I mean, they see it as, they see in some sense, Trump is defending their values. No, no, I, and I, I can see that. And I understand. And you know what? Uh, there hardly has any, been anybody in the public square who's, who I think out of fear has called that out. I mean, you do see it occasionally and you, you know, you see professors periodically saying this is getting ridiculous, but you see some of those people end up having to resign because they said that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I and again, I think you and I have talked about this before. I don't know if we've talked about it on air, but uh, like Susan Sarandon, uh, who was a, you know, extremely progressive person, said that if Bernie doesn't get it, she's a big Bernie Sanders uh, 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 supporter, that she may vote for Donald Trump. And her reasoning was that, you know, the revolution needs to start one way or the other, which does sound to me like the reasoning of the French Revolution, though. All right, I'll get away from fascism, but I'll say that does, you know, change for change's sake has had an awful, it does not, has not had a good history. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, just look at Koch's formula and it was the 80s i mean yeah no, it's funny it, i'm like, talking i'm thinking for a revolution i'm thinking about that's one coke. of the great mysteries of the universe why did coke change why mess with it if it's not broken and you know what's hilarious about it? i just have to do this side because I, I i bust your chops you probably know more about the french revolution than i do but you brought up new coke well that's it's just 
I don't know. Like when I get to heaven, God forbid, you know, God hope I do. The my big questions are not going to be about. They're going to be a. Why did Coke change its formula? <laughs> and was there ever a time when professional wrestling was real? That's going to be number two. <laughs> so I found this article that I remember reading. It was almost a year ago it came out in the New York Times Opinionator by Justin P. McBrayer. What an interesting, um, distinguished sort of name. Who is a an associate professor of philosophy at Fort Lewis College in Durango, Colorado. And he tells a story about going into his son's classroom, like a second or third grade classroom, on back to school night. And he he see, he, he was talking about the problem of moral relativism and not morally educating our children very well. And he sees this on the wall. Uh, fact, something that is true about a subject and can be tested or proven. Opinion, what someone thinks, believes, or feels. He says, I was hoping that the set of definitions was a one-off mistake. I went home and Googled fact versus opinion. And he, talked, he talks about finding the definitions online substantiating this and the common core standards used by you know, most K-12 through programs in the country require that students be able to distinguish among fact, opinion, and reason judgment in a text. And the common core curriculum online provides a whole uh, page full of helpful links for lesson plans and quizzes. <laughs> oh my goodness! Uh, so yeah, it's it's he uh, he talks about this um, dialogue he has with his son. Uh, he says, "I believe that George Washington was the first president. Is that a fact or an opinion?" His son says, "It's a fact, but I believe it." And you said that what someone believes is an opinion. His son says, "Yeah, but it's true." And he responds, "So it's both." a fact, and an opinion. The blank stare on his face said it all. <laughs> now, Bill, here's a little test I'm going to give you, which is devised from questions available on the Department of Education. I take its uh, resources on fact versus opinion, <sighs> opinion worksheets. So why do you do this to me without warning? Because it's fun. All right. Uh, are the following facts or opinions? Copying homework assignments is wrong. That is an opinion. Cursing in school is inappropriate behavior. That is an opinion. All men are created equal. That actually, unfortunately, is an opinion as well. It is worth sacrificing some personal liberties to protect our country from terrorism. That is an opinion. It is wrong for people under the age of 21 to drink alcohol. That is an opinion. Vegetarians are healthier than people who eat meat. Oh, I hope that's an opinion. <laughs> but I think actually there is scientific fact that backs that up. Drug dealers belong in prison. That's an opinion. The answer in each case, the worksheets categorize these claims as opinions. So you passed the test, Bill. Um, the explanation on offer is that each of these claims is a value claim, and value claims are not facts. This is repeated ad nauseum. Any claim with good, right, wrong, etc., is not a fact. So in summary, he says our public schools teach students that all claims are either facts or opinions and that all value and moral claims fall into the latter camp. The punchline, there are no moral facts, and if there are no moral facts, there are no moral truths. Well, and see, it's a, it's a misdefinition of fact, kind of using a semi-scientific scientific method. Um, it doesn't give us the opportunity to talk about different kinds of truth. So they use the word fact instead of truth. That's If you'd used, is this true... That's a different kind of thing. Well, it's interesting, the whole fact-value dichotomy. I mean, p plus the whole criteria, right? It's not. It's a fact if it can be proved. Well, there are lots of things 
that we would say are facts that can't be proven. The external world exists. Descartes showed us that. Right. You can't prove that. We could all be in the matrix. In fact, you could be the only one that exists, and I could be a computer-generated thing just to torment you. You know, I've actually considered that as a theoretical possibility. Sure, <laughs> sure. So I think that that's, you know, that the whole fact value breakdown or, or there, there, there are things that we think we've proven that wind up to be wrong. You know, it, it, well, what, you know, the other thing is in terms of what's a, instead of fact and opinion, what's a good idea that, that if we had that language, if we brought, you know, I, gosh, I just came up with this. If we taught people to appreciate the good, the beautiful and the true, there you go. Things might, we might actually create a civilization again. Coke would have never changed his formula with those standards. Hey, is this good, beautiful, or true? <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, Michael Polanyi, uh, the philosopher of science, uh, who wrote Personal Knowledge and among other works, uh, but basically he was kind of, he was a research scientist, and I think he died in the early 90s or late 80s, but lived uh, and worked in the later half of the 20th century. And he got into philosophy of science because he thought that people thought science was more objective than it was. Right, right. And he basically, rather than objective or subjective or fact that he liked the concept of public truth. So, you know, if, if I'm making a claim mm -hmm. that I'm not, he's not denying that contextual situations color claims, but he thought public truth is when you say, I'm going to make this claim. And I think it'll stand up to various scrutiny in the public square, as opposed to if private truth are, are we might put in a more relativistic value thing. I, this is kind of the way our community does it. But I don't know. I'd be reticent to sort of make a bold claim that its veracity or the compelling nature of it is universal. Yeah. I mean, in some levels, it's, it's an attempt to theoretically recreate maybe how values and norms initially came into existence in the in the village or in the tribe. You know, one of the things that just struck me as you were talking about that is that, you know, we often, I mean, this is this I'm about to make a value judgment, but when you're doing history of ethics, you often talk about a shaming kind of ethic as being a more primitive one. In other words, and to take away the value judgment, I don't mean necessarily primitive as being inferior, but it is the it you know it it is the tool of the tribe. It's the tool of the community where uh, community you know conformity to the community initially was about survival. Morality binds and blinds. Yeah, it, it binds yeah. you together and blinds you to other ways of seeing it. Yeah. yeah so yeah, what's interesting though when we have this kind of uh, and I think shame shaming has always been there. Uh, uh, <laughs> one of our favorite scenes from uh, Game of Thrones is. Uh, yeah, the shaming through the streets, you know. Shame. 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 But shame. It, it, it is. Shame. You know, it, it in some levels, shame. it is the morality of, of the playground. It's a morality that you hope people get beyond at some levels that they can see things beyond merely trying to make people conform. Ironically, you know, where you have this great kind of return to conformity, it's hard to know what tribe to be a part of because those, those, those uh, tribal and community connections 
in many ways have been obliterated. Yeah, it becomes like a consumeristic choosing of tribes as opposed to a kind of more situated one. I can still rem- remember this great uh, article P.J. O'Rourke wrote. Uh, I think it was in the Rolling Stones. He was at one of those uh, protests on um, the, the G8 or something like that. I don't remember. And and there was this one girl had a sign-up protest. And I don't remember what the issue is. But he goes, well, wh- why are you prote- protesting that? And uh, she goes, because it's bad for third world countries. And P.J. O'Rourke said, well, no, actually, this policy is good for third world countries. And he explained why. And she thought for a minute, she put down her sign and then joined another protest and picked up a new sign. (laughs) (laughs) So that's it. She's choosing her, she's choosing her, her cause. And there's a fluidity there. So I want to close our discussion with something I read uh, earlier this morning from the beauty of the infinite by David Bentley Hart. It's a big book. And not a quick read, but uh, and it's worthwhile engaging. I like to just to make sure that people are following me. Uh, that there's no sort of overarching means of critical analysis or back and forth by which you can just sort of distill the absolute truth into some crucible uh, that you know, can get above culture and there's relativistic. No, there's no privileged position. Right. Yeah. He says, for Christian thought, this is not by any means a disheartening project. For if indeed God became a man, then truth condescended to become a truth, from whose historical contingency one cannot simply pass to categories of universal rationality. And this means whatever Christians mean when they speak of truth, it cannot simply involve the dialectical wrestling of abstract principles from intractable facts. Yeah. Yeah, one thing I think that the early church uh, fathers had— that we need to regain, and I think the postmodern moment gives us an opportunity, is a realization that words are very flawed conveyors of greater things. And uh, they're all that we have, so we have to use them. But there was always a wonderful uh, suspicion, you know, um, uh, a hermeneutic of suspicion that was built into the whole, the whole project in, in the founding of our faith. Yeah, and I think, I mean, T.S. Eliot said that the problem with philosophers is they don't understand the metaphors they use. He said a poet would never use a metaphor without knowing what it means, but philosophers are really bad (laughs) to understand. So I think that on some level, words are are probably best when their truth capacity is relative in the sense of they relate. There's no truth that's not related to other truths, or the way words get their sense of capacity to make meaning is by being connected to other words, not by distilling one word abstractly, but by connecting them as a mosaic, where I think something like the truth emerges in their relation. Yeah, through a, through a glass dimly. One of the things that always strikes me in Paul, and, and uh, I once observed in kind of an overarching view of, of Paul that every time he talks about something complicated or mysterious, it almost always ends in doxology. He ends the argument, whether you think it's satisfactory or not, but he seems to realize that I've come to the end of words, and what I need to do is turn to heaven in thanksgiving. Don't know why I'm still afraid If you weren't real, I would make you up 
Ever since I've been with you 